0: The grid is very important to our lives. In Texas, when the grid went down, people couldn't get heat in their house. So that some of them, some of them froze. I mean, literally all, died of hypothermia. Others decided they would bring an outdoor heater in, decided they died of carbon monoxide. People die when you can't get the grid operating.
1: Welcome to the political economy project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for empathy media lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the labor radio podcast network. Today I'm speaking with author and energy analyst, Meredith Angwin. We'll be discussing her book shorting the grid, the hidden fragility of our electric grid which is an expose of the insider ruled practices of the deregulated areas of the United States electric grid. Meredith, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Well, I was able to read this book and I want to promote it far and wide. I learned so much and so many people in the United States have no understanding of where their electricity comes from. But before we get into the book, could you begin by introducing yourself?
0: Yes. I'm Meredith Angwin and I, I wrote a shorty to grid. my career. I was a chemist and I got a master's degree in physical chemistry and most of my career was improving various things for the utility industry. I was wondering, the utility industry has a research arm called the Electric Power Research Institute, which sponsors research, which will help Utilities do a better job. For example, corrosion control research, pollution control research, and so forth. And uh, I was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. And then I, I, I was, I actually worked in many areas. I worked in nitrogen oxide control for gas-fired plants in in hydrogen sulfide control for. H2S plants and corrosion control for nuclear plants. I mean, I was just all over the place. And so I learned a lot about the technologies of making power, all kinds of technologies, not just one. At any rate, I was living in California, which is where the Electric Power Research Institute is located. And when I retired, we moved to Vermont because our kids were both on the East Coast. As a matter of fact, one of them was in Vermont at the time, but he subsequently moved to New Jersey. And uh, I wanted to be close to my grandkids. I didn't like this idea that I'll fly in from California once a year at the holidays and say, oh, you grow I wanted to be involved in their lives at some level, you know, so we moved here. And then I wanted to continue to be involved in utilities and, uh, and, and, and the grid. And well, what happened was I began being for nuclear power and then I began writing a blog about our local nuclear plant the Vermont Yankee, which has unfortunately been shut down since then. And uh, I think it was one of the biggest union plants in the state, union facilities in the state. And it completely shocked me that the Democrat and governor and legislature were so eager to shut it down. But leaving that aside for a little bit, I began advocating for it. And one of the things is I've always liked to write. And so I began a blog. I began a blog about Vermont Yankee. And as I was writing this blog, every now and again, Vermont Yankee's interaction with the grid would come up. So I would research it up and ask people and write a blog post. And so it turned out there was a man in the consumer liaison group of our grid operator, and he said. Why don't you join the consumer liaison group with the grid operator? And I said, well, now that you told me it exists, I think it's a good idea. I did not know the consumer liaison group existed. They don't advertise it a lot. Okay. If you're on their mailing list, you get the mailings, but you're not on the mailing list, good luck. So at any rate, eventually I became a part of the steering committee, which they call the coordinating committee. And uh, I, I really began learning a lot about the grid. Now. Unlike other things I'd learned about, which I thought I could explain pretty simply, you know, let me, let me tell you about nitrogen oxides and why they're bad, you know, let me tell you about how you control nitrogen oxides and then oh, why it's imperfect. Uh, but the grant, I mean, people really, I could not explain it to people. I could not explain what was going on. And I thought, you know, people don't know this stuff. They really don't know the stuff. They don't know how decisions are made about, they might say, oh, I want this kind of power plant or I want that kind of power plant, but they don't know the decisions that are being made that provide, the, that end up making the choices of what kind of power plants are the it, So I decided that I needed to write a book because it was like way more than one blog post or a bunch of blog posts. And at any rate, that's what I did. And I've also felt as I was learning about it, I realized that my ignorance of it wasn't just that I wasn't lazy, it's that there are a lot of areas in managing the grid that are closed to the public. They're just closed to the public. And and uh, they don't, in my opinion, they don't need to be. I mean, like, for example, I can see why a power plant wouldn't like the details of its overhead being released to the public. But what's the power plant manager's role, element? vote for in terms of how the grid is managed, why is that a private matter? And people should know who's planning these things anyway. So I considered my book to some extent, an expose of grid management. So that's why I wrote it.
1: And so many people around the United States, when they think about energy, they really put it through a lens of climate change and they see good energy and bad energy based on clean energy and dirty energy. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And before going into that uh, within the goals of your book is you want to write this book on reliable electricity, meaning like anytime you turn on the light switch, you want to make sure that electricity comes on. You want to make sure it's relatively inexpensive and you want to make sure the electricity is made with low levels of pollution. And I love the analogy of the grid as the largest machine on earth in the sense that there's generation and there there's load and that generation load and generation need to work together like a car essentially. And I, I really love that idea that the amount of consumption happening has to match with the amount of generation happening. And it's almost this angelic system that has been stitched together. And it, it's, it's so complicated on how it works, but it somehow it has worked up to this point, but we're starting to see, the fragility of the grid, uh, as you expose in your book as well.
0: Well, yes, I think this is the answer that we don't we don't see that matches explicitly because no one explains it to it. For example, about Texas, they say, well, the frequency on the grid was going down. And so they had to begin cutting people off of the grid. Well, that's because the amount of electricity made and the amount consumed have to match. And in Texas, they didn't have enough electricity available in 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 february 21 and so i the, the power plants could not keep up the frequency which meant that there are automatic things on the power plants which will shut them off and so before they began shutting off automatically which is of course harder to deal with the grid operator began quote shedding load, which means that they began shutting people off so that the power plants would, the frequency would go up to a level that the power plants could sustain. Now, the problem with shutting people off, there's a lot of problems with it. The first is all of a sudden, instead of manipulating power plants and how they're operating, you're manipulating who gets electricity. You're shutting off to gear, and then you shut off to somewhere else later. The idea there is you're, you're putting in load shedding also known as rolling blackouts where you black out one part of the grid so that the frequency goes up and the power plants and the amount of demand are now matched and then after that you shut off for an hour you turn the area back on and then you turn another area off well that is not a trivial undertaking and in texas They weren't able to do it. They weren't able to roll the load from one area to another. So some areas were out of power for two days. And it was a cold snap, which is actually why it was happening. And the grid is, the grid is very important to our lives. I mean, I mean our lives, I mean, in Texas, when the grid went down and people couldn't get heat in their house. So some of them, some of them froze. I mean, literally all, died of hypothermia. Others decided they would bring an outdoor heater inside and they died of carbon monoxide. People die when you can't get the grid operating. And if you say, well, over here, I'd have a, a gas fired furnace, so there's no problem. Well, you know something that furnace is controlled electrically, the electricity You, that that furnace may burn gas or it may burn oil, but it's controlled with electricity. And so when you don't have electricity, you don't have that either. I mean, I, I understand the, the desire to electrify everything and so forth and so forth, but I mean, really, when you get right down to it, I suggest that everybody have like a, a wood burning stove at home and some wood outside.
1: Yeah. It's it's almost <laughs> like going backwards, evolution oh, yeah. in a way. Not, not that I, I do love sitting by the open fire. And I was in Vermont for the first time in January and they my, my friend had a wood stove and his whole garage was filled with $1,000 worth of wood. And it really was a wonderful way of heating the house, but there's plentiful wood. And he still had to pay $1,000 for the, the, the wood for the winter as well, which I'm sure you're familiar with living is, oh, in Vermont. Years.
0: Yes, I mean, there's a lot of wood here, but when you get right down to it, wood is, of course, natural, but you have to cut it, you have to split it, and you have to set it around for an hour, uh, hour, I'm sorry, for a year to dry out before it can be burned without a sizzling and, and without being green wood that doesn't burn well. So what I'm trying to say is there's a processing, just the logs that they deliver and dump in your driveway for your wood stove have been processed. And and the, the price of that is added to
1: the price of the wood. So you also do this great framing that there are two grids. There's the power grid and the policy grid. And I want to talk a little bit more about the power grid. And from my understanding, I came from USAID working in a initiative called Power Africa, which was looking to increase generation in Sub-Saharan Africa and connections. Unfortunately, it was mostly based on a model that was also doing what we've done in the United States, which is changing the generation, transmission, and distribution, the three parts, and breaking them up from what, what once was vertically integrated, vertically operated utilities. And within each one of those parts, it's starting to fragment a lot of these grids using wind, solar and natural gas and natural gas can be very expensive trying to get into Africa as well. From my background too, I also have nostalgia, even though I wasn't living back then about this idea that the grid was, you know, this great thing in the 1960s, 1970s. But in your book too, you say there were problems with these very large vertically operated utilities even though maybe that is the best way to, to go forward, to try to reorganize our, our power structure. But could you talk a little bit about the actual power grid in that model?
0: Well, in the, that model, the wonderful thing about this model is accountability. In other words, if your power goes out, you know, exactly who's to point to, who should have fixed it and the powers that be the, the legislatively appointed overseers of the grid do not want their, the people who appointed them to look back. So if your grid is, is fragile and you're having a lot of power outages, they will find the utility. So the utility, would, the utility finds that it will have a better bottom line if it's very reliable. Plus, the utility can pass through the costs of making it reliable. So it's win-win for the utility to be reliable. If it if it's reliable, it can pass through the costs of becoming reliable, and won't we'll get fined for not being reliable. Now, people would say, "Yeah, you know, we used to have a gold-plated grid," and I mean, you know, to some extent, that was true. It was maybe too reliable. If there is such a thing, no, there is no such mm, thing. No but, such thing. But the <laughs> thing is that. The idea was that it was it was gold plated and the people who oversaw it were actually on speed dial with the utility bosses. And and, and so, you know, they were just making money head over fist and, and, and the poor rate payer was paying for it. But actually nowadays, as it is in my book, the areas that have supposedly deregulated have become more expensive. Than the vertically integrated areas. And that is, you know, Charlie Munker, who's with the Warren Buffett, he has a statement about show me the incentives and I'll show you the results. And that's the, the fact. I mean, in the old days, it was incentivized to be very reliable, even if you had to go quote gold place the grid. Nowadays there's nowhere where the butt stops. If it if if you have a problem with the grid and you call, there's no one to call up. Like for example, I said. Somebody said, "Well, North American Reliability Council NERC ensures reliability." And I said, "Really? What about what about the number? What if there are not enough power plants to make the power?" Oh, NERC isn't responsible for resource adequacy—the number of power plants. That's the state's responsibility. Really, <laughs> it's the state's responsibility. But meanwhile, the state may say we need another power plant but that power plant is going to have to bid into the auctions. It's not guaranteed that it will make a living. As yeah. a matter of fact, there's a section of my book that says selling kilowatt hours is not a good way to make a living for a power plant. The power plant cannot make it on kilowatt hours. Yeah. It, and, and, and so all the grid people, all the merchant power plants on the grid, they love it when the grid is in trouble because then the, the grid operator has to call on expensive diesel power plants. And the way the grid is set up, those diesel set the, and, and expensive plants of various kinds set the clearing price. And that means everybody gets the clearing price. So all of a sudden, a nuclear plant that has, the cost of their fuel hasn't changed at, at, at a cent. And all of a sudden it's it's getting the $4 a megawatt hour costs that the grid is going up to instead of the the five cents that costs it to make power. And, and anyway, so yeah, there's nowhere to to point to and it just, it re, it becomes unreliable and expensive at the same time where in the vertically integrated area, you could at least say it became reliable and expensive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Within the United States, we have the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC, and it regulates the transmission and wholesale of electricity and natural gas through the interstate commerce and regulates the transportation of oil by pipeline interstate commerce. At least that's the official definition. That's right. And you you also focus on a Order 2000. It was a move to standardize the market design across U.S. to create these regional transmission RTOs essentially, yes, and yes, the regional yes. transmission organizations. And these RTOs then be are trying to help manage the generation and supply. And there's you you have this great analogy of the jump ball, is when it, it essentially these RTOs say we need this much energy, and and then these auctions happen, and they bid out, and that's how it all kind of works on meeting the. The demand and the generation, or the load and the generation, as well. Could you talk? Could you talk a little bit about how this order came about? Why it was done, and and what was the incentive and motivation?
0: Well, what the, the motivation, I think, was to make a better, even playing field by having these RTOs that ran by auctions instead of making individual decisions. The trouble is, they just sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater. There's no planning, and there's not any reasonable amount of planning, for example, in the old days, a, a utility commission would say, well, I don't know about this. We've got too many eggs in one basket. I don't want them to build another gas, fire, power plant, coal, fired power plant, whatever, let's, let's have a, a, a grid with a variety of power plants on it and, and, and so forth. But in the RTOs, the idea is that you, it, we're not, it, nobody gets to make that decision anymore. Um. The idea is that the cheapest power plants will be the ones on the grid, which of course raises the question is what is, what is cheap? What is, what does it mean? What does it mean? I mean, you can say, oh, I know what means. it means. It means they cost less. Well, yeah. But the thing is that, for example, let's look at a wind turbine, for example. Everybody, you look at the wind turbine, and the wind turbine is, they claim it's the less, least expensive thing on the grid. Really? Well, it, what it is, is it bids in to the auctions very inexpensively. It can bid in, and I will pay you two cents per kilowatt hour to take my power. You don't have to pay me, I'll pay you. Well, there's no, no plant that can compete with that. Well, why is it able to do that? It's able to do that because it gets a lot of subsidies. It gets what's called a production tax credit, a two cents per kilowatt hour. And it can also sell its a certificate for every kilowatt hour it makes. It can sell a certificate called a renewable energy credit. And so it gets all this money before it ever gets a penny for the actual kilowatt hour, you see? Yeah, the production tax credit, by the way, I've always thought that it is, it is the most anti-regular people thing I can think of because, you know, you can't, a tax credit doesn't do me a lot of good because I don't have a lot of income and I don't pay a lot of taxes, but a tax credit is very valuable to a successful company that has a lot of income and pays a lot of taxes. It's better than actually more income because it would have to pay more taxes on the more income. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just really uh, as astonishing to me how 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 it works now. But, but the problem is that the value of the power to the grid for a wind turbine is not that great because the wind turbine goes on and off when it wants to, not when there's a lot of requirement on the grid and yet the wind turbine, because of the tax credits and the REX, the renewable energy credits that it can sell is probably the most uh, reliable money generator for the owners of the grid. And I named my book shorting the grid, partly it was a spun on shorting, but it's also partly about the big short in which the complicated systems for mortgages ended up being detached from whether or not the mortgage is likely to be repaid, which is, of course, what a banker needs to know. And since the, the, whether the mortgage was profitable to the banker no longer had much to do with whether it would be repaid, the whole system became very, very weird as described in the big short. Yeah. And it ended up hurting a lot of people. And I'm afraid it's the same thing is happening on the grid because the value of the power to the grid does not make the plant profitable. And the plant and a regular plant is not profitable when the grid is humming along. But if the grid is stressed. Then it then then the clearing price goes way up and the plant is profitable so it's happy. Look at the incentives to the grid nowadays, and they are not about reliability or even clean power.
1: Yeah, it's it's insane. And one of the points is that keeping fuel on hand is a lose lose for the generator. So having yeah. a reliable fuel source, whether it's coal or uranium or other things that can be used in case that there's a supply chain problem or a major winter snap and you can't move things around that good that the generation continues to go continues to happen but yet this these com- these plants get penalized which is, which is just insane and to get more into the point of what what you were just talking about shorting the grid i i feel like this is a culmination of the just-in-time This whole idea of the free market approach where everything is just in time and it's all about these efficiencies and there's very little backup built in. And then people and traders and speculators getting involved that are making money that have no business in actually creating power. They're they're creating they're they're generating their own wealth through speculation, through the the large swings in the price. And that's where the business model is, is to try to collect profits through the large swings, which actually parasitizes the system instead of actually generating, like delivering reliable, low cost, low pollution, electricity and power. And this is what I'm seeing, you know, throughout our entire system. And it's almost like a, a cancerous approach to how you do political economy.
0: Well, one of the things is that they sort of get a market that isn't a market. In other words, they, it, it's a lot of fun to watch the large swings and, and be a trader and, and make money on them. But when you get right down to it, I am a ratepayer and I don't have very many choices. Now, if I were, if it was really a market, let's look at a very simplistic market. Let's look at the farmer's market down the street. Okay. I can go there and I can say, these zucchinis look good. I'll buy them. Okay. No, we going those others, they're, they're cheaper. Maybe I should buy that. Well, no, they don't. Some of them don't look as good, but I can choose some of them. In other words, I get lots of choices as a farmer's market. I have no choices about electricity. I mean, in, in some areas they have allowed some kinds of choices, but most areas you don't, you don't get to choose. You, you have a, a default provider that's your provider. So all this regulation. It's all about this fakie auction stuff that, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I hate to describe it as fakie auction, <laughs> but if nobody is incentivized to actually provide the customer, that is somebody like me, with low-cost power, then all these auction stuffs are just part of the whole system for, for getting trading and arbitraging and, and so forth. I read this this book and it was very I re- read it after I read this wrote Shorting the Grid and I probably wouldn't have put it in Shorting the Grid anyway because shorting the grid is very practical. It's it, all my examples are practical. But I read a, a book called the the knowledge we've lost in data. And one of the theses of this book is that sometime in the 70s, economists, instead of trying to describe the market or even tweak the market with tax rules and so forth and so on, began saying that they could design markets for certain kinds of outcomes. So instead of just a market is like, I go and buy some zucchinis, a market is something that an economist designed for outcomes. Well, this is, this is not about the end user, the customer. And I, I talked about this in the book and it was quoted by the, this part of the book was quoted by the Don Christ, the consumer advocate for New Hampshire in his review of the book. And it was when I said, I went to a meeting and I realized that I didn't have the money to become a, a stakeholder. You have to buy into being a stakeholder. And I really realized that I looked around at the stakeholders, I was invited to the meeting as a guest. And all of a sudden, I just felt like a surf. You know, they were the stakeholders, I'm a nobody. I mean, I don't feel like I am personally a nobody. It was like my viewpoint and how things get done. It's not represented here.
1: Yeah. You're a subject, not a citizen anymore. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So I want to be mindful of your time, but I do really want to talk about the renewable wishful thinking and the distributed generation ideas. and the idea that well let's just do batteries you know let's it's it's fine let's just well you know okay so wind and solar right wind you know you can't really rely on when it's not windy and solar shuts down 365 days a year but we're, we're gonna get batteries on on the grid and you have a great great write-up about this wishful thinking could you just talk a little bit about that please
0: well Yes, it is, it is wishful thinking that batteries are going to back up the whole grid. And people imagine that they're going to just suddenly get a lot better. And there are, there are, um, I don't want to get too detailed with this here, but there are <laughs> rules about how to make a good battery, and it has to do with the EMF series and stuff like that, which is why the people are using lithium. And it, it, it is not because people are a little weird that they're using lithium, it's because of the properties of lithium for making a battery. Unfortunately, those same properties make lithium batteries very flammable. And so, for example, Moss Landing that PG&E built, is a, they're very proud of this as a battery system. But it, it could only back up the grid. Oh, it couldn't back up the grid at all. It could back up the grid for I don't know, thirty seconds or two minutes or something. The the local California grid. But what it it can do is it can back up a power plant for maybe an hour. I mean, this this battery. Let's say that it can it can provide. 200 megawatt hours. I don't know if it can provide that much. or can provide 400 megawatt hours. Vermont Yankee was the power plant that was considered the nuclear plant. It was considered too small to be cost-effective. Okay. So it was too small. It was 600 megawatts and it could run for 18 months. So now you have something that can maybe make 200 megawatt hours and Everybody's like, this is the future, this is the future. No, after the 200, after, after it discharges, you got to charge it up again with a power plant. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it is so, the batteries are so minuscule compared to the grid. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I feel that has contributed to the, the batteries will save us thing is the way power plants pay for transmission. And one of the ways they pay is that the transmission costs are allocated depending on the distribution utilities share of the highest hour on the grid. So for example, if Green Mountain Power is 8% of the local grid, at the highest hour on the local grid, it has to pay 80% of the transmission costs for the whole grid. Well, the thing is that Green Mountain has bought a lot of Tesla batteries. And it, and when the price of the grid, when the tra- requirements on the grid get high, it just begins discharging its batteries for its own users. And therefore it, it is drawing less from the grid. And it's so it saves its users money because other people's utilities are going to pay for transmission on the grid, and Green Mountain Power is going to pay less. So you see, Green Mountain Power will have to try something like: due to our batteries, we saved four hundred thousand dollars in an hour. Yeah, no. because somebody else is paying that four hundred thousand dollars for the transmission that for the transmission overall, not just that hour.
1: Yeah. And you talk about the tragedy of the commons and how that one state can be completely reliant on another state and then like Vermont can be completely dependent on hydro in Canada and uh, say, look at how clean our energy is. And oh, yeah. it, it's all dependent on, on the transmission lines coming from Canada, which can be shut off in the winter when Canada needs its own power <laughs> right. for, for during the winter. So just going beyond Shorting the Grid, your book, you've also written Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy, and Voices for Vermont Yankee. And you run, uh, is it Carnot Communications?
0: Carnot Communications, yes. Thing is, it's Carnot. uh, I I tend to do little uh, mini jokes. For example, Shorting the Grid is a pun on both shorting and the big short. And Carnot Communications is on the Carnot cycle, I mean, the Carnot cycle, if you, is the most efficient type of power plant you can have. And it, it's a theoretical cycle. We, we don't actually have any. What I mean by a cycle is thermodynamics determines how much work in this case, electricity, you can get out of a heat engine. And the heat engine can be a a gas turbine, a a coal fired plant, a nuclear plant, anything that uses heat to make mechanical energy that becomes electricity by turning turbines and generators. And so I just thought it was fun to call it Carnot Communications as the most efficient way to get some work out of all the heat. Of course, I had one. I, I, I had one. I uh, think where I ran into a, a, a friend of mine on the street, where shortly after I was started at Cardinal Communications, and he said, "I said, oh, I just started a little company. It's really, I'm really excited about it." He said, "What is it?" And I said, "Well, it's called Cardinal Communications." He said, I "Me, mean, it. You're kidding me. carnal even kick you. no, no, it's not Carnal. It's like, you know, was named after Sadie Carnal who was up yeah. France.
1: <laughs> love it. I love it. And I love everything you're doing to just get people educated on what the grid is and how to engage more with their local utilities. Could you talk a little bit about, as we're closing out here, what people can do to learn more beyond buying this book and reading it and becoming more knowledgeable as a consumer and a citizen. But how do you engage with this, this whole grid idea that you present?
0: Well, if you're in a vertically integrated area, you, could, uh, you can go to your public utility meetings. They will have will many open meetings. They will, they will make a statement about their integrated research plan and you can write notes about it and so forth. If you're in a, quote, deregulated area, things are much more closed, and it's harder to get a handle on what's going on. But you still can. You have to follow a utility dive, and you have to follow your own RTO's website, and you have to write letters, and you have to go to open meetings if you can If there are open meetings, our grid operators are not big on open meetings. Other grid operators are more big on it. But there, as I say to people, there are no sunshine laws on the grid. There are sunshine laws for our legislatures, whether they meet those sunshine laws or not, you can at least appeal to them as a way to get, to understand what's going on. I also suggest that you subscribe to two things on the web that are free. One is Utility Dive. It's a magazine. It's a online magazine, and it's really uh, excellent. And the other just started out. Emmett Penny, who also writes as Luke Barbarian, pro nuclear man. And he, he he decided he wasn't pussyfooting around
1: about. No, no I, I no, I love it. it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Anyway, he has started. He has started three times a week a newsletter called grid brief, which is excellent. And I'm so happy to see him doing that. And it's been so needed. Now you understand that I, I pioneered this material, but I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a grandmother. I'm in my seventies. I mean, I'm in good health by so far. My mind seems to be okay. But what I'm trying to say is it's I can't plan to follow how the grid is going to evolve for the next 20 years. We need to have people like you, people like Emmett Penny, people like Chris Kiefer, yeah, he's great. Uh, who are really following it. But I would say that the first step is to find out your RTO's website if you're in an RTO area, uh, get very familiar with it, ready to write emails and letters, be gadfly, read Emmett Penny's grief. Uh, read, 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 a read utility die. Those are three ways you can continue your education.
1: Well, Meredith Angwin, thank you so much for your time. And everyone should go out and get shorting the grid. And let's keep on pushing, keep on trying to educate, organize, mobilize, and, and take power to try to get the power as reliable, as inexpensive, and as clean as possible. So Meredith, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very, very much.